Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. So, just the other day I hear the word that one of the last of the old-time contactees, Howard Menger, the New Jersey sign painter, sometimes called the Jersey Adamski, died. Did you know Howard Menger at all, Don Ecker? I didn't know him personally. I, of course, knew who he was, but, uh, but no, I didn't know him personally. I'll tell you a story. A few years ago, more than a few years ago, make it a few decades ago, I was having lunch with a certain unmentionable UFO personality from New York, and we went to this diner across from that person's office, and we had lunch with Howard Menger. Now, Menger started talking about maybe his contacts were really government experiments of some kind, that he had been victimized by the government into believing that he was meeting Venusians or Saturnians or whatever the heck he was meeting in the New Jersey (laughs) swamps or whatever. Strange, strange odyssey. And he seemed to be a pleasant fellow. He was not, as they say, critical of the fact that the person with whom I had lunch also was someone who had never really said a good thing in print about Howard Menger. He seemed like a pleasant fellow. Then he was supposedly building his own flying saucer when he moved to Florida. But as I said, he was... Flying saucer, you said. Yeah, he he was going to build his own flying saucer based on Hmm. technology from somewhere. That would be styrofoam technology. Of course. Or frisbee technology, actually. All right. This was all frisbee technology. But anyway, so we observe his passing and the passing this year also of Dr. Frank Strange's in quotes, because we weren't very sure whether Dr. Frank Strange's really had a doctorate, other than the kind that is conferred on an honorary basis or you get for seventy nine ninety five from the degree mills. Well, I, I knew Strange's. Okay. And he was a very pleasant man, like many in the field, in my opinion, highly deluded. The whole Thalthor, you know, uh, alien in a, in a lake or whatever the hell it was that he was pushing years ago. But, you know, he was, he was a pleasant enough guy. When, back when I was doing my first national radio talk show, UFOs Tonight, in the early to mid 90s strangers would uh, frank would periodically call us up i think just to hear his voice on the air but uh, but he was uh, certainly a nice enough fellow uh, as far as frank's information from a ufo perspective i would have to uh, place it in the suspect file if you know what i mean it doesn't even get into the gray file it goes right into the suspect file Right. Okay. But, you know, you you guys actually forced me uh, this past week to do something that I have not done in a very long time. Actually, since I left active research, I went through a bunch of documents after listening to uh, Dolan's interview last week. And after I listened to his interview... 
this past weekend, I once again listened to that interview a couple of times and took notes. And then Sunday night, and now you've got to understand, I have been divorced pretty much from overall UFO research. But then I listened to the interview you did with Stephen Bassett. Uh-huh. And boy, I got to tell you, uh, <laughs> oh, Lord God, I was absolutely floored, flabbergasted, and once again, absolutely positively correct in my assumption that leaving was the right thing for me to do. <laughs> so what was your take on him, Don? I mean, what what's up with this guy? What's the deal? Is it just like all the other people who are desperately looking for a little bit of attention? Is that what it is? Well, you know, years ago, uh, back in the 90s, Steve Bassett, now I've had very limited contact with him, but he had uh, invited me to appear with a group of other people at that time, which included Alfred Weber, at a Bay Area uh, UFO conference. Mm -hmm. I was one of a number of speakers. I gave a short address. And they were getting ready for one of his uh, his conferences, Stevens conferences. Now, for whatever reason, after that, and I was actually when when I talked, basically, what I primarily talked about was standing on the shoulders of some of the giants of years past, as far as trying to establish UFO exposure going back to the days of Donald Kehoe and what he attempted by getting congressional interest in the subject, ultimately hoping to hold congressional hearings. And people like Kehoe were, in my opinion, and I've said, said this many times, this guy was at the pinnacle, as far as I'm concerned, in trying to get the word out. And uh, listening to Bassett saying that credibility basically means nothing to him made me wonder what in the world I spent 20 years doing when I was director of research for UFO magazine. I mean, that was one of the primary things that my wife and I were attempting to establish. We deliberately avoided those people that we knew to be or have fraudulent information or fraudulent assumptions about this or people that I had researched and interviewed. Hey, you've got to remember my background, I was a cop and I was a detective. And when I researched a case, I used those protocols. Now, you know, that turned a lot of people off. That, that upset a lot of people. That, that made me persona non grata in so many venues I could not begin to tell you whether people were afraid of my methodology, whether I, they found me personally intimidating. I don't know. I'm, I can only make assumptions about that. But my criteria was trying to get to the bottom of what a case was, what it represented, and to bring that information ultimately to the public and thereby hopefully put more and more pressure on those holders of the secret key into the UFO overall subject. Mm -hmm. 
And a couple of times, I think I really hit the target dead center bullseye with with two, primarily two cases. Actually, there were several other cases that I hope that uh, we can briefly hit on today. Definitely. But getting beyond the Stephen Bassett show, listening to Rich Dolan. Now, first off, I don't know if you guys are aware of it, but when Dolan originally wrote his first book, UFOs in the National Security State, I was the very first person in the UFO field to review that book. As a matter of fact, he still uses to this day uh, excerpts from my review up on his website. If you go up to Keyhole Publishing, you'll find a, a photograph of me and, uh, and an excerpt from my review. I was absolutely blown away by his It's a great project. book. Yeah, it's a great book, definitely. And by his scholarly approach. Now, I got to briefly know Dolan. I, I met him a few times. He was out here on the West Coast. He was out here at a MUFON meeting. He was out here for some other things. <clears throat> I believe, if I recall, a NUFOC conference several years ago. Gene, you should appreciate that. Your pal, Jim Mosley, was out there. Ah, yes, my good old friend, Jim Mosley. That's the person that you would not want to be found on a desert island with. <laughs> That's the guy, yeah. <laughs> but at any rate, um, and I, you know, Dolan and I would, would chat as we had time briefly, and I will never forget on one of these forays, and I don't recall now which one it was, but we started talking about some of the names back in the early uh, days of my involvement in, in the UFO field. Uh, names that uh, I'm sure many in the audience probably would recognize. Uh, people like John Lear, Bill mm. Cooper, mm. Lee Graham, Ron Regeer, Richard Doty, Bill Moore, Jamie Shandera. Okay, and and of course there were many other many other people too. Bruce McAbee, uh, Bud Hopkins, Dave Jacobs. You know, and I knew all these guys and. As a matter of fact, in Jerry Clark's encyclopedia, which he did a real yeoman's job uh, in detailing the field going back to the 50s, Jerry Clark referred to this era as the dark side of ufology with the Lear uh, document that came out around that time, the MJ-12 stuff, and then, of course, Bill Cooper and Cooper's tripe that, uh, that made it into the field. Now, I was literally at ground zero in the mix of all this. And as a matter of fact, over the years, I did a number of, of very telling articles that were not only published here in the United States, primarily in UFO magazine and on the net, but also I, I wrote for some British publications because the Brits also knew uh, Cooper and uh, John Lear and these other folks. So at any rate, and I, I, you know, had told Rich, I said, hey, look, man, you know, when uh, you're ready, you know, I'm ready. And he had told me, he said, look, he said, I definitely want to call you up and talk to you about this. Well, he never did. And I never heard, actually, a word from him. So I just kind of shrugged it off. 
Well, then I heard his interview that that you guys uh, performed with him. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, I was blown away in shock because he, during this interview, said some things that, quite frankly, I found astounding. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right. You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. This offer only good for USA listeners. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked. We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking with retired UFO investigator Don Eckert, who has realized that when you get involved in the UFO field, maybe you can retire, but you can't leave. <laughs> okay, what did you find astounding about what Richard Dolan said on the Paracast? Well... Okay, here we go. I mean, you know, this is why I'm, I'm listed as, mas- I guess, the master curmudgeon, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you know, he started talking about, and, and I know David uh, had brought up John Lear's name, and, of course, when you bring up John Lear's name from back in those days, and we're talking circa 1987, 1988, 89, 1990, and 91, which according to, to Dolan is uh, the scope of where his book, his book number two, ends, right? 1991. Right. Now, he started talking about John Lear and Bill Cooper, and John Lear's, you know, feeding Cooper is the, uh, is the phrase he used, feeding Cooper all of Cooper's information. Now, 
had he have taken an hour and talked to me, I could have given him chapter and verse about Mr. Lear and that schizoid maniac Cooper. Don't hold back, Don. From tell, from day one. Tell well, us you know, what you think here. This guy this guy was a vicious drunk. He was a liar. He was a prevaricator. He stole, plagiarized information from various researchers across the board. He mixed it up in his own little paranoid fantasy delusion, and then he spewed it out. The problem with it was, and I conducted the very first expose on this guy, which we published in 1990. And there were a lot of reasons why I did that. And I knew when I started it, I knew for a dead fact that, brother, were we in for it now? But you know what? I didn't give a damn because I saw this guy from day one, what he was. He was a liar, a manipulator. Whether Lear fed him a lot of stuff, let me tell you about what Lear did do. In 1987, when I really decided to become involved in this field, and if I had a time machine, I would go back and I would check myself in with a neuropsychologist, psychiatrist, and have a chat with myself. You'd be talking but, to Dr. Phil on a number of programs. Yeah, probably Dr. Phil. Maybe Jerry Springer. Who knows, you know? Oh, but, I can see that. You know, we can get you and a few other people that you'd like to talk to on an extended basis on Jerry Springer, and then we'd take out the boxing gloves and have at it. Well, you know, in 87, when I first had my, my first computer, and I discovered CompuServe, and I think I probably told you guys about that the last time we, we did a uh, an interview, a chat. Yeah, yeah. I found CompuServe, and I discovered something called the Issues Forum. Now, in there, literally on the heels of my joining CompuServe, Bill Moore uploaded his MJ-12 file. And I can distinctly recall the night that I downloaded it onto my computer at 300 baud, okay? And reading it literally as it downloaded, that's how slow it was. And I was galvanized. I just could not believe what I was reading. Well, a day or two later, or shortly thereafter, John Lear put his Lear hypotheses up on CompuServe. And uh, the guy that at that time was the founder of the old Paranet bulletin board system. And, Gene, I'm sure you will probably be familiar with Paranet. Yes, I was, but I think you should tell our listeners, because a lot of our listeners may not have been around during the early days of the Internet, or they were not surfing, they were not well connected. So tell us about Paranet. Well, Paranet originally was begun in 1985 by Jim Spicer. Now, Jim was living down in Arizona, and at that time, there there was not an Internet per se. There was, but I mean it was not available to the general public. So as a result, what the more enterprising computer users would do would be set up bulletin boards, providing you had to have a telephone modem. You could call the bulletin board, join. Most of them were free. 
and uh, become a, a member. And then any time, you know, somebody else wasn't on the bulletin board, depending upon how many entryways they had, you could call up and exchange emails, read files, and so forth. And at that time, most bulletin board systems, and this was actually before my time, most bulletin board systems were geared toward computer stuff. How people were setting up their computers, how they were tricking them out. There were a lot of different brands of computers people were using. There was not only the PC, there was the Mac, there was the Amiga. You know, there were all kinds of, of systems. And everybody, you know, was invested in their own little five acres. Yeah. Now, everybody, yeah, the BPS world was, I was uh, certainly intricately involved in online communications at that time. It was much clickier than it is now. Uh, you'd have to be fairly knowledgeable in computer technology to participate. It wasn't geared towards the mass market at all. There was a whole underground at that time of people doing this. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Spicer, Jim Spicer had a different idea. He said, hey, all these bulletin board systems are out there, and they're all, for the most part, geared toward computers. Why not do one for paranormal things? And he set up the very first Paranet BBS. I believe it was Paranet Alpha now. I think he was in Fountain Hills, Arizona. That's where he was living at the time. Okay, that's not too far from me. That's maybe about a 15-minute drive. Okay. Is he still so, around? Oh, yeah, Jim's okay. still around. Okay. Several years later, he turned over Paranet to another guy by the name of Mike Corbin down in Denver. But by this time... Paranet BBSs were all over the United States, and they were also in Europe, and they were also in Russia, if you can believe it. So, you know, Paranet, before and once the Internet began on a more commercial basis, then, of course, Paranet quietly started to recede. But during this period of time, Spicer made the acquaintance of John Lear, in 1987 at the MUFON conference, this was, I believe, in the spring of 87, in Washington, D.C. So during this period of time, Lear was putting together the information for what later became his hypothesis. Now, for those people that are not familiar with John Lear's original paper, it truly behooves you to go up on the Internet and plug in Google or one of your search engines the John Lear hypotheses. And you will read the basically the paper that he submitted to Jim Spicer that Spicer first put up on Paranet, then on CompuServe. And let me tell you what, this thing was shocking. He alleged, and I'm just going to give you a couple of the highlights, he alleged that not only was there a secret government, but this secret government was in secret cahoots with the alien presence here on planet Earth, extraterrestrials that had secretly come to Earth, established some type of communication with the government, and in exchange for the aliens providing technology to the United States, the United States allowed the extraterrestrial presence to abduct humans, in some cases kill humans, 
they were using what they were taking from humans at a secret base down in Dulce, New Mexico, where they were creating God knows what in this secret base, that uh, at one point, and I can remember him stating, I believe it was five years in the future from that time, the aliens would make their presence known. There wouldn't be a damn thing that anybody could do about it. I mean, it was really some paranoid, schizoid ravings. Now, when I read that, and this was before I was really involved, I said, whoa, i got to talk to this guy. So I got a hold of Spicer. Spicer had a contact number for Lear, and I called him up. We talked for a couple hours, and he basically laid all this out. And one thing, being a cop, I wanted to know, look, where did you get this information? Hmm, sure. How did you come by this information? What makes you believe this information is real? Well, he was really coy about where he got his information. Later, as I became very familiar, I discovered a lot of this information flowed from Paul Benowitz, a name that you will recognize, because he was, he was mentioned by Dolan the other day, and by John Grace, a.k.a. Val Valerian. So about a week and a half after I had that mammoth two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour phone call with Lear, I get a knock at my front door. It's FedEx. And this guy has this huge package for me. I didn't know what it was. So I signed for it, took it in, opened it up. It was from John Lear. And in it was, among other things, a videotape, VHS videotape, with six different UFO-themed television programs on it and some uh, video shot by a Japanese astronomer, the Linda Howe cattle <laughs> mutilation special, the Bob Emmenegger uh, show that he did. He was involved with a film back in the early 70s and some other stuff. And then all of Lear's documents, including the O.H. Grill document. So I started wading through this stuff. And quite frankly, I didn't have a clue what the hell it all meant. Now, in the meantime, time moves along, comes the summer of 1988. And this guy pops up on Paranet by the name of Bill Cooper. Now, Cooper comes online with this story about being a naval crewman on board a diesel submarine in 1966 the USS Tyru, and while he was on lookout one day, he and another guy were shocked and amazed by his words now, an aircraft carrier-sized UFO coming out of the ocean, flying up into the sky above the clouds, and a very short time later, coming back down and going back under the water. And then what the Navy officers and people did they were threatened with court-martials and punishments and all kinds of stuff if they talked about this to anyone. And Jim Spicer was quite honored, and he put a, a very complimentary note up about Cooper's story, being a former service member, being willing to come forward and talk about this incredible sighting. Well, then a very short time later, 
very short time, Cooper comes back online, leaves a message. He was just fired from his $75,000 a year job because of his releasing this story. So immediately, Cooper became the star of the moment among the, the Paranet uh, user base. Well, somewhere along the line, John Lear had been starting to, to catch a lot of flack and a lot of fire from various Paranet users demanding he provide proof for some of his more outrageous allegations and statements. And Cooper came to Lear's defense. Now, I know exactly what happened because actually Lear told me later. He sent Cooper a package of information like he had sent me, okay? Now, what I didn't know was that he also included something called the Dallas Revisited Videotape. Now, what is the Dallas Revisited Videotape? Oh. Business travel is a profitability killer. You know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We're talking to Don Ecker, UFO curmudgeon, retired UFO investigator, someone who actually did real on-site investigation of UFOs, not somebody who just sits around, looks at books, and writes about them. Someone who was out there because using his expertise as a police detective, he tried to find the facts. So, okay, what's all this about Dallas? Are we thinking what I'm thinking here? JFK. That Dallas, the JFK yes. assassination. Oh, boy. Now, let me give you a little background on this. But before I do... Let me tell you what I heard come out of Rich Dolan's mouth, because he was either too lazy to call me to get the real facts, or for whatever reason, Dolan considers me persona non grata. And I think I know why, but that's beside the point. Dolan, on your program, stated when he was talking about this, that John Lear had been contacted and given a video by a Scandinavian filmmaker. Do you remember that? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, there was no Scandinavian filmmaker. And when I heard that, I was sitting here at my desk going, 
what in the hell is he talking about? The guy that sent John Lear that video was a guy by the name of Lars Hansen. Yes, he had a Scandinavian name, but he's as American as you and I are. As a matter of fact, Lars Hansen was a conspiracist writer, researcher, and JFK aficionado. Now, I got to know Hansen very well after this, and I can tell you tons about that whole triad. Lars Hansen, John Lear, Bill Cooper. I mean, to sickening detail. And other names that figured into it. Let me throw one actor right here. Gordon Novell. Ever hear of him? Mm, can't say I have. Doesn't strike a bell. I've been thinking about it. Doesn't ring a bell at all. Well, it should. Gordon Novell... Well, forgive me. Was, ...was one of the people... <laughs> no, he was very involved in the JFK assassination thing. As a matter of fact, Jim Garrison, the, the New Orleans district attorney, went after him as being one of the people that he was alleging, Garrison was alleging, was the architects of bumping off JFK. Mm. And if you go up to your buddy, uh, your buddy uh, Project Camelot's website, uh. you will see where they interviewed him, and you want to read what they had to say about Gordon Novell. Now, Novell was always a very spooky guy with intelligence connections. God, boy, you talk about dragging up stuff out of the... We're kind of going off the track here, Don, so let's pull it yeah, back but, in. But, well, this all figures, this all figures all right. in. So Lars Hansen, okay, first discovered John Lear by finding a flyer where Lear was giving one of his early UFO talks, some local forum that he had been invited to. And Hansen knew that John Lear was the son of William Lear, of Lear Jet and Sigler mm -hmm. Corporation. Sure. And he knew that Lear, or he thought he knew, because Lear actually had been disinherited by his father, didn't get a nickel of the family fortune, he thought that John, because of his family connections, would be able to finance his JFK research. Hmm. Now, Hansen had, had partnered up with two guys by the name of Perry and Adams, two guys, long-time JFK researchers. They had secured a copy of the Zapruder film, a very old fourth or fifth generation copy, because those two guys were convinced that somehow the driver of JFK's limo was complicit in the assassination, okay? In other words, had been bought and paid for and helped carry out the assassination of Kennedy. Well, they washed all the color out. Now, David, you will appreciate this, okay, with your photography background. Yeah. They had washed the color out of the film in order to enhance the contrasts. Now, sure. I have a copy of this film to this day. I have it here. And when you watch the second, the split second, that Kennedy is struck in the head, and I might add, from the front, Forget this crap about all the bullets came from the rear. I've seen people shot. I know what happens when you get hit by a bullet. You don't fall into it, okay? 
it drives you back, and this was a high-velocity rifle cartridge, hit him in the front, blew the back of his head off, and at that split second, there is a reflection that momentarily looks like a handgun. Now, I saw this for the very first time on November the 19th, 1988. I flew down to Las Vegas at Lear's invitation. I flew down there. I saw him speak at the Association of Former Intelligence Agents at this thing right before Thanksgiving 88 in Vegas. And before that, I had gone to Lear's house. He poured me a drink, showed me some of his new information, and then said, are you ready to be shocked? And I said, what do you mean? He said, I want you to watch this video. And I saw that video for the first time. Now, i got to tell you, I didn't know what to, to think about it, because, honest to God, if you're not aware of it, it really does look legitimate. So later, I, I met, got to know very, very closely Lars Hansen. And Hansen told me what had transpired with this. But as time went on, Lars became convinced that this was nothing more than a reflection off of Roy Kellerman's head. Kellerman was the Secret Service agent sitting in the passenger seat. Now, you got to remember, back in 1963, Brill Cream. Okay, everybody used Brill Cream on their hair. which Real shiny. Reflected, real shiny. It was yeah. real shiny, reflected light. And yeah. that's what you were actually seeing. So, in the meantime, Lear had sent... Okay, so basically he took Brill Cream, made it into a pistol, and shot Kennedy. Well, no, I'm I'm kidding. That wasn't that funny, though. Yeah. (laughs) Nobody's laughing. I'm in trouble now. But no, we gotta gotta bring this back. We're just going off on a tangent here. This is nice, but what is this? I mean, I don't want to sound like a conversion myself, but... Cooper! Cooper began, began hawking this at every venue he could ascribe to. Out here in Hollywood, he held in 1990 at Hollywood High School, he had a speaking engagement here. And at the time, I didn't didn't realize who was setting him up. Two Hollywood guys had heard Cooper on the old Billy Goodman radio program. Now, Billy Goodman was the Art Bell before there was Art Bell. He was all over the West Coast, and I'm not sure how far east his show went. It was broadcast out of Las Vegas. He was the guy, also, that I, I might add, this is another name you will recognize. He was the guy that, after George Knapp brought Bob Lazar to the Channel 8 KLAS TV audience in Vegas. Billy Goodman was the first radio guy to have Lazar on his show, which created a firestorm. Now, we all will remember that Lazar is the guy that allegedly was hired by EG&G down in Vegas to work out at Area 51 on recovered alien technology, i.e. the alien propulsion system on a recovered UFO, okay? Now, in order to truly understand what has happened today in the UFO field, 
you know, this is going to, I'm sure a lot of people's eyes are glazing over, but you've got to have a firm handle on what was happening at this period of time. This is vital to understand, and some of those people are still out there today. For example, Linda Howe. Now, back in those days, Linda was honored for the work that she did on cattle mutilations. But my God, since then, her research has just gone to hell in a handbasket. Uh, at one point, she was promoting a known hoaxer down in South America by the name of Urandar Oliveria. Mm-hmm. She's promoted the drones. Which we know are nonsense. But I have a question for you, Donald. Let's step away from this for a moment. Meta question for you. So is this inevitably what happens to people who get involved in this field at, at some point do, let's say, legitimate research, come up with some good information, contribute something to the field, is it inevitable then that they basically lose it? I mean, I, is, I, is there I, anybody I who hasn't? I can't say that. Well, uh, yes, I can tell you right now, I didn't lose it. <laughs> My wife didn't lose it, okay? But you guys we, got out. You got out. Yeah, but... But recently, we were in this field for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, it was not an easy thing wading through this stuff. But I was brutal, okay? I was brutal in my standards of research. And that pissed a lot of people off. A lot of people out there, and I'm, I'm, you know, hey, I've got a thick skin. But a lot of people out there hate me. They hate me. They think I'm a total jerk because... I don't tolerate fools gladly. And if you look at our baby, my wife Vicky and my baby, UFO Magazine, which we no longer have anything to do with, it's gone to hell in a handbasket. The most recent information, the most recent issue, they've got an interview in there with David Ick. This <laughs> guy, this not, guy not hard. Yeah. is Very a lunatic. Yeah, I yeah. would not. I would not have wiped my posterior with that story. Okay. Yeah, this it's it's unfortunate. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it's it's unfortunate, and and actually, it's interesting that uh, I guess Gene, you said you got your copy. For some reason, I have not gotten my copy, so I have not yet seen this thing. But I, I was also very surprised to see that that was the case. I was not thrilled by that. But again, you know, I, I keep bringing it back to this, Don. Is, is this happening? Because sensationalism is what sells? Is that the deal? It's symptomatic, in my opinion. Okay, let's be real blunt. This is Mm -hmm. Don Ecker's opinion. It's systematic in what is happening throughout our society and our culture. There is a moral ambiguity with everything. People do not any longer consider what is right, what is wrong. Okay? Everything is okay. You know, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. Now, listening to Bassett the other night, mm-hmm. and I gotta tell you, you are much, and, and people consider you a jerk, David. I was gonna you're say, much, I, 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 you're I, I, much this, nicer you know. than I would have been because <laughs> if somebody on my radio show would have told me standards don't matter, I'd have hung up on the son of a bitch. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? We were giving him rope to hang himself. I mean, I think it's useful at a certain point, Don, to let people show their true colors. So, so in that sense, I think, and based on the feedback on our forums, 
I think it's pretty clear that Bassett hung himself. Of course, the people who go to the X conference, I'm guessing that a majority of them will not listen to that show, will not even know about the Paracast because because they're they're too busy listening to George Norrie do entertainment. And this is where my personal frustration comes into this and that this is not entertainment for me, but it is for a lot of people, sadly. Well, you know, here here's the thing. Now, whenever I've been involved in any endeavor, I'm talking about any endeavor mm-hmm. that I believe in, quite frankly, I go balls to the wall, okay? My entire take on this UFO subject, when I consciously decided all those years ago to become involved in this, I did it for one reason. I thought this had the potential to be the greatest, most exciting and important thing in all of human history. Mm-hmm. Let's just stop for a second. My God, extraterrestrials, if that is true, and, and incidentally, i got to tell you, that may be my personal belief, okay? However, there's nothing yet that anybody can do to absolutely prove it, using my standards of proof. Absolutely. I could not, when I could not go into court, raise my hand, and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me, God, yes, aliens are here. Couldn't do that, because I don't know for an absolute fact. However, that is what I believe by my high standards of of fact-finding that I conducted for years, having broken two huge UFO stories back in the early 90s, STS-48, I'm convinced this day that that was an extraterrestrial object, the Mars Phobos Soviet and NASA probe that went to Mars in 88, 1988, and encountered a huge object, and I'm talking about stupendously huge, and they sent the photo back that I was able to secure from Glav Cosmos. That showed something that was truly beyond the pale. Yes, my personal predilection is they are here. Well, I could not go into court and state that yes, ET is definitely here. But that's what I that's what I believe is the right. deal. Sure, sure. That ET is here. Okay, let's go and, back to Richard Dolan again. The impression I'm getting here is that from what you're saying, Dolan is accepting things especially during this dark days of ufology going towards well, 1991. Yes, and, and the people the people that he is willing to give a pass to, okay, in, in my lexicon, he's making a huge, terrible mistake. Now, I'm sure that if, if Rich hears this show, or if he gets wind of it, he's not going to give a damn. And that's fine. I mean, this is still the United States of America. We still have freedom of, of speech. Everybody can believe what they wish to believe. But in my book, if you are going out to be the definitive one-stop shopping center for legitimate UFO information, you must, absolutely must, be very careful who you hang out with. Mm-hmm. 
And that'll upset a lot of people. Well, so be it. Well, here's the deal. It's the difference between being a researcher and socializing. And what I, I think what I said on the Dolan episode was, I'm not interested in having friends in this field. I'm not interested in that. Um, I'm not interested in socializing in this field. That's not the case at all. And I think the problem is that Rich Dolan has made friends, and he doesn't want to piss them off, basically. And I think that's unfortunate. I think that actually affects one's credibility as a researcher, as you would expect. Well, like I said, and believe me, I believe this with everything in me. That period of time, 87, 88 through 91, mm -hmm. in order to fully understand what has happened to this field and what is happening today, you've got to have a firm grasp of understanding of what went on then. Because some of those people are still with us. Right. Like Lear. But here's the thing. So we see that there are a number of people who are involved in this who basically are trying to muddy the waters. And with, in the case of Lear, he's gone on record saying some of the most incredibly outrageous, ridiculous stuff. And, and Don, here's the thing. I, I believe that a lot of the stuff he doesn't even believe. He just throws the stuff out there to stir the pot, to make trouble. So well, is let it? Me, is let me tell you. Actually, I heard John Lear say this with my right. own two ears. All right. Okay. Years ago, when Lars Hansen, for a short period of time, was living in Lear's guest house, and that's a whole nother story. As a matter of fact, then after he left, Lars Hansen wrote. And you can find it online. Uh, I think I've read this. 300-page yeah. track called Lear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah, I think I've read parts of this. Yeah. So that's what the guy does. He gets his yucks that way. So can't, in that light, can't we just write this guy off? I mean, Don, at what point do we simply start to take certain people and say, you know what, everything you say is suspect, so we're just not going to listen to you anymore. Well, I wrote I wrote his information off years ago, many years yeah. ago. Yeah, right. Okay, and I considered him, you know, not even worth discussing. Although I did tell him that John, in my opinion, we have you to thank for Bill Cooper. Okay, <laughs> for giving Cooper an initial podium. You know, back in in eighty uh, nine, I guess it was. Lear, because of his name, was the state director for MUFON. Hmm. Okay? And he was the host of the National MUFON Symposium. This was the symposium, and I, I, as a matter of fact, I spoke there. Back in those days, I was noted for my, for my research. What I was really involved in was my research on mutilations. Not only cattle, but also human. And you can still find some stuff up on the on the web about that. I haven't conducted any investigations into that for years because for like three years I banged my head against the wall trying to uncover what was going on. And I took a lot of heat for it. And finally I just got disgusted with it and moved on. But John Lear gave Bill Cooper a place to speak. And this is where Cooper first came 
to public notice. Now, look, I will give you an example. I was there. I heard him talk. I was in the audience. And Cooper had come out with some photographs and some other things he was showing. And one of the things he was showing were some photographs of the moon that he claimed, well, number one, there was a joint American-Russian alien facility on the moon. All right. And that there were areas of the moon where you could literally walk around unprotected with just an oxygen mask on. Yeah, right. Okay. I've heard some of that. There was flowing water on the moon. There were bodies of open water on the moon. Now, as proof of this, he showed these pictures. Well, (laughs) it took me five minutes to discover what the deal was on that. And I forget now the guy's name, Fred. Uh, he wrote a book uh, about alien bases on the moon. It wasn't the one that uh, that everybody. It wasn't the George Leonard book. What the hell was this guy's name? Well, but oh, Fred Steckling. Fred right. Steckling, Alien Bases on the Moon. Now Steckling had written his book, Alien Bases on the Moon, and as proof, he also included. A number of photographs he had gotten from NASA. Now you gotta remember, back in those days, the unmanned lunar probes that were going after the moon, they would develop the unmanned robot craft, would take the pictures, develop them on board the craft, and then beam them back to Earth. Now, on some of these pictures, the development fluid pulled on the photographs. And when they were beamed back, that's what you saw, okay? You know what I'm talking about, David? I think I've actually seen a couple of these, yes. Okay. Yeah. But according to Steckling, these were open bodies of water on the moon. Cooper oh. just grabbed that, just grabbed that and ran with it. So this, so this is a theme. slipshod crap that, you know, that was being passed off as real research. Well, and you should see some of what's coming out now from people like Alfred Weber with Mars photos. Look, there are rock gardens and beings walking around having picnics. And I look at, I've looked at some of this stuff, and I think to myself, my God, people are drunk and absolutely high. Looking well, at these photos, like seeing stuff. That's Weber, just Weber lost me. Weber lost me when when he claimed that alien particle beams knocked down the yeah. twin towers. Yeah, no, As a yeah. matter of fact, not only yeah. did he did he lose me then, he offended. The Absolutely. hell out of me. Absolutely. I, you know what? I'm so with you on this point. Uh, it, it's such an incredible insult to the people who died that day, the many people who died horrific deaths that day, to say stuff like that. It is just, it is, it is it, it, obscene. It's obscene. It's depraved. And, and to me, when I heard that stuff, I thought, this guy, what a, what, what an absolute jerk. But didn't Bassett state the other evening that he presented Alfred Weber a lifetime achievement? Oh, yeah. You got it. Well, you see, this this is the kind of slipshod, sloppy thinking, I mean, where somebody's mind is so open that it has gone even beyond a refuse container. It's become a, a facility to 
dump your brains out. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think in this case, the brains have fallen out. You know, I was listening to the logic that Bassett is expressing there, where he says, for example, well, we believe that Weber actually did remote viewing because the government did remote viewing. But how is that demonstrated? And the logic is that. Yeah. Where's the logic? You might as well say, okay, ladies and gentlemen, this is my logical extension of what he says. In order to become president of the United States, other than being elected, of course, the minimum requirements are being a natural-born citizen over 35 years of age. Okay, folks, I'm the president. Please call me Mr. President, Don, okay? Thank you, Mr. President. Yes, here, call on Don. See. Meanwhile, look, as far as let's put the, let's put the nail in the coffin on Bassey, all right? Let's make this very, very clear. This is a guy, and this is something, Don, I want to ask you about, which is people in this field who have no background, they, they popped out of thin air, all right? This is a guy who has been a failure at everything he has tried to do in his life. He so much as admitted this to me in a private conversation I had with him, okay? This is a guy who has been desperate to be listened to, to be consulted, to have any respect at all. Desperate for any kind of attention, to be in any kind of spotlight, because he's not done anything with his life. So, he grabbed on to this, and I see this repeated over and over again in this quote-unquote field. These people come with no backgrounds, no accomplishments of any sort. They show up with a line and a spiel like Jeff Peckerman. He shows up out of nowhere. In the case of Peckman, ooh, he made the Metatron Harmonizer. What a load of crap. So they show up, these people who have, again, just no life, all of a sudden, they find themselves in the spotlight. They'll say anything to be there. They'll do anything to be there. And that's it for them. As long as people listen to them, they'll say whatever they got to say so that you'll pay attention to them. We have seen this time and time again in this field. I've seen this in other fields as well. These people have no verifiable backgrounds. Nothing. You know, first time we had Bassett on the show, I said, so what's your professional background? Well, I did consulting and uh, I did uh, business stuff and consulting. That's it. Well, wait a minute. Like, can you be more specific? Well, I did consulting. Now, in the high-tech world, when you say I do consulting, that's basically a catch-all for, you know, I do whatever people will pay me to do. You know what? Before we get paid to do anything else, I think we should take this and continue with Don Ecker on the other side of the Paracast. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Dana. 
Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Hour two, UFO curmudgeon. That's his self-title, so we will refer to him as that. <laughs> the good, bad, and ugly about UFOs with Don Ecker, who was one of the former editors of UFO magazine, feels that the current iteration of the magazine has corrupted his interests and that of Mrs. Ecker, Vicki Ecker. And now we're talking about, well, moving past, hopefully, the Steve Bassett conundrum. No, but let's understand then how someone like Lear gains any kind of a foothold in that the guy, listen, I've looked into this guy's background, and the one thing I'll say about him is that the guy seems to be an unbelievable pilot. David, yeah. there's one reason why you have a hard-on for Lear. Now, I'm not saying I blame you, but let's be up front. Yeah. He called you a disinformation agent. Yeah, ex absolutely. Sure. Now, this this is the kind of crap that happened time and time again back in the early days. When I did my first expose on Cooper, and he was, and Lear was one of the people involved in that, mm -hmm. I was called a CIA disinformation agent. The CIA was financing the magazine. The CIA had set up my wife and you have a, I mean, this is the kind of crap and most people realize it's crap. It's okay. also sometimes a badge of honor, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> and short of pistols at dawn, pal, okay, I'll meet you with my second, you bring your second, here are the pistols, let's shoot it out. There's not a damn thing you can do about it. Right. Let me let me qualify this. Let me respond to that, Don. It's not the only reason I'm pissed at the guy. As someone who has seen and experienced stuff, all right, I, I came to do the show with Gene because I want to have conversations about this. I want to talk about it. It's therapy for me, all right? But what I've got here, kind of like, it reminds me of the movie Fight Club, where you've got this guy who's going to uh, uh, the the Edward Norton character is uh, is going he discovers that um, basically he goes to these uh, meetings for cancer sufferers for people suffering all sorts of ailments at at, uh, at hospitals this is way basically of kind of like dealing with his negative energy and he sees this woman there and basically he knows she's there pretty much for the same reason he's there, okay? But uh, he knows she's not sick, just like he's not sick in the way that he's pretending to be. And so at one point he says, you know, you're a faker. You're, you're here, you're just basically here faking it. Now, I'm not, I'm, I'm bringing up as an example, I'm not saying I'm the Edward Norton character because I know what I've seen, all right? So I'm here to have discussions about it that I'm trying to keep reasonable, and I'm finding, by the way, that having a reasonable discussion about this perhaps is a bit of a pipe dream. Maybe it's not possible because of the fact that people have either glommed onto this as a way to get attention, as a way to make some money because they can't make money any other way, or as 
basically a way to have a surrogate religious belief system. Because yeah, for so many I, people, I, I, that's I would agree with that. I would agree. So in the case of Lear, the, the fact that he's just making such ridiculous statements about stuff. But look, let me, is, let me is, give you, know, you, from my own experience, knowing Lear. Lear was a hotshot pilot. Right. Yeah. He's not anymore. His feet are ruined. Okay? He couldn't hmm. pass the physical. He's not, he's not, uh, he's not commercially flying anymore. And right. as it was, he was never a passenger airline pilot. He flew cargo. Okay? So, you know, what does he do with his spare time? Now he has a lot of spare time. Well, he got into UFOs back in the 80s. He was in it for a number of years. Then he dropped out. Now he's back. Okay? He's back. And he still has that sheen of mystery about him among the uninformed. Okay? He was a CIA pilot. Actually, he flew for an airline that was under contract with the CIA during the, during the Vietnam War. And he's done, he's done other things. He's flown all over the world, okay, for a long time. And I knew him back when he was still flying. He had kind of a swashbuckler persona, okay? Mm -hmm. You walk into his den. His walls work as, and I have some photos of this. If you're interested, I will send you a couple. Yeah. Photos all over his den. People that he's met, places he's been, pictures of aircraft, pictures of advanced aircraft. Right behind his desk on a coat hanger hung a 45 caliber automatic pistol. In his closet, he had a Thompson submachine gun. Cool. Okay? Uh, I mean, it was legal. Okay? He had a federal firearms license for it. But, you know, this was all to me... And looking at it, trying to be objective, this struck me as props. Okay. Well, he's a character. He's a character. Yeah, I, I get that part. He's a total character, and that's fine. Um, but he's useless in terms of anything to do with investigating UFOs outside of the sociological implications of the phenomenon. Right. Otherwise, well, hey, look, you know, he, he was he was one of the premier initially one of the premier proponents of Bob Lazar, and Bob Lazar in those days his best pal was his buddy Gene Huff, and Huff I used to know Huff pretty pretty well, and occasionally we would call each other, chat, find out what was going on his end of the stick, my end of the stick. And he would give me all kinds of John Lear stories. And they used to, they, meaning Lazar and Huff, used to ride Lear unmercifully. They would call him a ding-dong, a nutcase. I mean, to his face, okay, because of some of these wild claims that he was making. Claims like there are wait, aliens wait, wait, living wait, out wait. among... Wait, Bob Lazar was calling someone a nutcase? Yeah. That's rich. Okay. All right. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, you know, for a short while, and they did it just for a lark, about four or five weeks, they hired Radio Time 
and did a radio show for an hour or two hours. I forget now what it was. And they brought Lear on there as a guest. Now, Bob Lazar and Gene Heff were the, uh, were the hosts, and they rode him like a wet dog on that show. And Lear just sucked it up. Hey, he was getting attention. It's, well, that back to my point, this whole thing about attention. So, all right, look, I have a question for you, all right? Because the good, the bad, the ugly. So, man, we've been going over the bad and the ugly. What about the good? Let's look on the bright side. You know, 20 years, who do you trust? Who do you trust? Who do you say, okay, yeah, you. Who I trust? Yeah. In this field, who do you trust? Anyone? Uh, well, I'll tell you. I, it's something I have not really even thought about for a long time. Who, who's but, contributed, Don? Who, who has actually helped us move any of this forward, in your opinion? George Knapp. Okay. Let's, let's qualify that. Because there are a lot of people that are, I think, concerned with him bringing Bob Lazard to the forefront. What are, you, what are your thoughts about that? Okay. Now, I, I, I know George very well. Mm-hmm. Have known George for over 20 years. We've had, Vicky and I have had dinner with him. Matter of fact, one night, George and I got drunk together. This was, uh, oh God, he was up here. I was was uh, in the process of shooting a, uh, a promo for a project that uh, we were trying to, to get uh, on TV uh, with my with my radio show, and George was the guest. And afterward, it was around Christmas time. And afterwards, some of the people that were there had a party, and we went and we uh, toasted each other all night long using a bottle of tequila. Okay. Had a hell of a good time. But we had. My point is, we had conversations about many things, and of course, one of the biggies was Lazar. Right now. Before George ever discovered Lazar, and it was George that discovered him, he had other people, and he wouldn't he wouldn't tell me who they were, people that had worked out of the site. And I'm talking about Area 51. Sure. People that over the years had come to him with various stories. Now, once again, and, you know, I hate to sound like a broken record, but in order to really appreciate this, you had to have been grounded in a lot of this information. Back in the early to mid-80s, in, uh, I'm trying to remember what magazine it was, there was an article written by, and the author's name was, it was a pseudonym, Al Fricky. okay? Al Fricky. Actually, it was written by Jim Goodall. The famous aviation writer. Okay, I can tell you that today. This might have been Omni magazine. No, no, no. Right. It was uh, it was a uh, one of the uh, old anyway. military military magazines. All right. Like Soldier of Fortune, but it wasn't Soldier of Fortune. All right, we got okay. the gist of it. Okay. And in there, he was talking about under his pseudonym information he got on some of the projects that were being conducted out of the top secret base, aviation projects, 
in, in his article, he suggested that some of this stuff might very well have been recovered off-world technology. And in this article, he stated that we have stuff flying around in the desert that Captain Kirk would drool over. Of course, talking about about Star Trek, the, mm -hmm, the sure. original series. Right, right, right. Now, Nap told me personally, he told Don Ecker, he said, look, he said, I've had over the years a number of people that came to me with stories about not only having seen recovered discs out there, and I said, wait a minute, George, wait a minute. I said, who are these people? He said, well, I can't tell you. He said, they're scared to death. To this day, they're scared to death. And he gave me a couple of incidents that had happened to one of these people that had talked to him. And after this, this individual, who George assured me he had seen his credentials, had worked out at the site, had seen something very disturbing, had sought Nap out, his house was broken into. Everything was rifled. It was, and I'm not saying definitively, but it was as if somebody was passing this guy a message. If we want to get to you, pal, we can get to you. You see what I'm saying? So then the Lazar story comes out in 1988. And the first special that George did on Lazar Lazar was blacked out. And I said, George, how do you know that this, and then he, he did another one and Lazar came on camera. And I'm sure just about everybody knows why that happened. It was after Lazar took Gene Huff, Lazar's then wife, and John Lear out to Area 51 in the desert on public land to witness a flight of one of these advanced craft which they videotaped. Now, I've always had Lazar, and this may shock you, but I've always had Lazar in my gray basket. I have hmm. not been willing to totally dismiss him. I'll tell you why. Primarily because of George Knapp. George told me, because I, I pressed him on this, George, how do you know this guy isn't full of it? He said, well, okay. He said, you know, and then he, he went into all these people that he had known years past. He said, so I asked him questions like, well, where was the can? Where, where did you eat? Where was the cafeteria? Where did the aircraft fly into? Uh, what did you see when you got there? All this kind of stuff, right, that, that you wouldn't know unless you were there. And then he queried, according to what he told me, Lazar. Well, where did you eat at? What was the color of the walls in the cafeteria? What happened if you had to go to the to the bathroom, the restroom? Uh, where was the restroom, according to what you're saying, where you worked at? Where was the restroom located? Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO. Reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? 
Conspiracy Journal, and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net, and we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications, and you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at webtv.net. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. about the restroom at right. Area 51 with but, Don Ecker telling us, of course, what was conveyed to you by George Knapp. Right. So the bottom line was, according to George, George believed him. And then there was one other thing that people today forget. When Lazar claimed he worked at Los Alamos, Everybody said, no, he never worked there, until they came up with a phone book with Lazar's name in it. Now, there's one other thing that kept me on the hook, and I saw the interview. Dr. Edward Teller, the father of the hydrogen bomb, we, yeah, right. one, mm -hmm. one of the guys that worked on the original Manhattan Project, developing the atomic bomb. Teller was being interviewed for a TV show after all the Lazar uh, information became public knowledge. And Lazar had said initially that he had met Teller at Los Alamos. Los Alamos, Teller was sitting outside on a park bench reading the Los Alamos newspaper Lazar saw him, walked up to him, and said, because Lazar, even then, was known for working on jet cars. Lazar had developed, had built a jet car, and I saw his jet car. I mean, it's a damn car with a jet engine on it, okay? All right. I got a picture of it. All right, all right. So they took pictures of this for the newspaper, and it was on the front page. Local area scientists, you know, developed jet car. And Lazar walked up to Teller, didn't know him, introduced himself and said, by the way, that story on the front page is about me. So he sat down and they started talking. And it was Teller, according to Lazar, that arranged for Lazar to be interviewed at EG&G for the job that ended up being out of Area 51. Now, interesting story so far, but that's all it is, a story. And I recognize that. Well, can, can I ask a silly question? Well, Don, before you even continue, i got to ask a silly question. I'm wondering if anybody else has ever asked this, okay? Try this out for size. Is it a possibility that Lazar worked at Los Alamos 
that he worked at Area 51 and that he's making up the stuff about a retrieved craft? In other words, what is there in Lazar's professional history that qualifies him to attempt to reverse engineer something? Because, see, this is, this is what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that, okay, maybe the guy was there, but does that mean that he's telling the truth about what he was actually doing there? Because he said some stuff that's just outrageous, that in terms of physics doesn't really make sense. And there's the further issue, and I'm not, I don't claim to be like a, a researcher of Bob Lazar's past, but I do know that he made certain claims about, for example, having gone to MIT. Right. And I believe, if I'm not wrong, Stan Friedman confirmed right. was not accurate. You're right. And then, and, and then Lazar comes out and says something like, well, they went and they scrubbed me from the yearbook as if they were going to go and find every yearbook and take them out of there, which is obviously nonsense. So, hey, that's always been a major problem with me. Right. His so, alleged academic background. Okay. So, so I'm, you, you're not going to get an argument from me. Right. Well, I was you're looking for an argument. Right. No, we like. No, 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 but why? That, that was menace, basically a metaphor. No, no, I know. Well, we might argue with you, but we like you. How's that? Yeah, we like you a lot, actually. I mean, yeah. Look, one of the reasons that we really want to have you on was because we're we're kind of this is like our little version of therapy after having become frustrated. I think with a number of these shows. I mean, you heard the Bassett thing. I I, I wanted to lop his head off. Quite frankly, I, I was working overtime to calm myself, but I wanted to slice the guy's head off his body. You know what? When we did the show with Dolan, you noticed there was a period of time there where David had nothing to say. I asked David, no. you have a comment? He said, no. No. I, and it wasn't because David just was at a loss for words. It was because he was holding himself in. Well, you know, I'm going to look, speaking about Rich Dolan, I'm going to look forward with much anticipation to getting a copy of his new book and going through it with a fine-tooth comb. Then, if, if I feel that it's necessary, I'm going to write a critique on that, and uh, we'll see what, what becomes of that. But but i got to tell you, just, just the whole Rich thing, Rich Dolan thing, I, I was very disappointed. But to get back to Bob Lazar, so David, you made some excellent points about about his academic background. What makes him qualified to work on a recovered alien propulsion system? Well, I do not have a science background. I do have an investigative background. So what I'm about to give you is simply circumstantial, okay? Shoot. But, so he meets Ed Teller. They sit down. They had a chat. At the time, and this is what Lazar told me personally, that he wanted to get back into the science field. So he asked Teller, well, you know, this is what, I, what I've what i done. This is what I'm doing. I'd love to get back into science. You know, do you think maybe you could help me out? And for whatever reason, according to... Lazar, Teller took a liking to him. So then he gets notified by EEG and G. They'd like to do a uh, an interview with him. So he goes down. He goes out. He's interviewed, and he's hired. This is his story. Now, mm -hmm. Teller, Teller was being interviewed 
a number. Of course, you know now that Ed Teller is gone. He's dead. Well, sure. Yeah, you know, he's, he was being interviewed for uh, some television program, and I saw the I saw the tape of the interview, and they were going over you know his background, his work, things that he's done over the years, and then they made as if they stopped the interview. The camera was still rolling. The camera was still rolling. Mm -hmm. The interviewer said, well, tell me, Dr. Teller, what would happen if I ask you if you know Bob Lazar? And Teller looked up at the guy, and he said in his, in his accent, if you ask me that question, I would say nothing. Now, I was shocked. It's weird. You know, I'm, maybe I'm just easily shocked. But, you know, if somebody came up to me, and said, do you know Joe Blow? And I didn't know Joe Blow. I'd say, no, I don't know. Or, well, yeah, I met him. I tell her, instead of just using one of those, you know, easily explained away things, not realizing the camera's running, if you ask me that question, I will say nothing. Now, that told me volumes right there. Now, I don't know how he knew Lazar, but he obviously did know Lazar. So like I said, it's in my gray basket. Do I think that he is totally legitimate? No. Do I think Bob Lazar is totally illegitimate? No. Do I think Bob Lazar would give a damn what I think? Once again, no. Right. But there it is. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to be as honest. No, 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 no. You're doing exactly what you, you should be doing. Okay, so we have one guy you think is, is a service to the field, George Knapp. Is that I it? I think he's done some damn good work. Who else? Uh, Kevin Randall. All righty. I think Kevin Randall has done some damn good work. Another name that you may or may not know, he, he passed away several years ago from complications of diabetes, somebody that I, for a while, was very close friends with. Don, this is Don Estes, right? Russ Estes. Russ Estes, I'm sorry. That's right. Russ yes. Estes, yes. Russ, Russ was, uh, was an outstanding researcher, outstanding researcher, and he was a filmmaker, and he was working on a multi-part series on the entire UFO field, and actually... Uh, and because of my background and what have you, I was involved in that. Russ had uh, done a number of interviews with me, basically taking a look at some of the more questionable people in the UFO mix. Hmm. And, boy, that caused problems, too. That takes an awful long time. There's so many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, being, you know, having the position that I had then, uh, director of research and trying to keep the magazine as factual as was conceivable. You know, that came with the territory. A lot of, a lot of problems with a lot of, of people that, uh, probably should have been looked at with a microscope in all the venues that, that they were in, but they weren't. And so for whatever reason, we decided that was our job. We were trying to be the clearinghouse. And, you know, I, I don't know if I said this or not, but 
in order for the mainstream, whatever that mainstream is, whether it's media, which I think are absolute whores, or the public at large, in order to be taken seriously, and incidentally, from my own standpoint, I don't think that will ever happen, you have to be willing to clean your own house. And that's what we did for damn near 20 years. We tried to clean the house. And ultimately, it was an exercise in frustration because, quite frankly, the people in the house don't want it cleaned. Right, right. That's That seems to not have changed at all, right? I mean, that's kind of where we're at today, where basically it's all about sensationalism. Right, right. It's all about sensationalism. Now, you know... You take a, a look at, at somebody that years ago did some outstanding, in my opinion, outstanding work. Linda Howe. She was a broadcaster. Uh, she was a news reporter. She, you know, I mean, I, I can remember her when she was working on one of the networks down in, in Denver, when I was living in Denver. And her original uh, cattle mutilation special was aired down there. And it was quite frightening. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, the implications of what she had uncovered uh, was, was quite frightening. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked. We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to The Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We're talking to Don Eckert, UFO curmudgeon, UFOs, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And when it comes to Linda Moulton Howe, I suspect we're going to hear both versions, the positives and the negatives. Let's talk about the positives. She started out to be really a top-notch researcher. Yeah, she was a top-notch researcher, investigative reporter, and she did uh, one hell of a job on the cattle mutilation phenomenon. And as a matter of fact, when I, when I first became active in the field and actively researching, that was the area that, that I took a look at for like three years, was the, was the, uh, the mutilation phenomenon. And I'll give you uh, an example. Now, it was a combination of several people that first gave me a heads up on the human mutilation phenomenon. And at first, I didn't believe it. But then I discovered that happened back in the in the mid to latter 70s, my first mutilation victim, human, happened in the state that I was then living in, in Idaho. 
And I, I ended up talking to the cops that, uh, and this was after I was medically retired from the police department, but I had talked to the cops that were involved in that investigation. And it was a rather gory thing. Uh, this body was found, but this body, this human male victim, had been mutilated just like a cow. Sexual organs removed, and I remind you know you know what I'm talking about. I don't well, the same kind of a weird cauterization of the wounds. Yes, yes. So that put me on the trail, and I was obsessed with it. Obsessed, and I began doing so. And I was talking to a lot of people in the field. One of them was John Keel. Now, regardless of how many people feel about John Keel, and back in those days, before I really became real familiar with John, and I still have respect for what research he conducted in the 50s and the 60s, it was some bizarre stuff. Um, John told me about a case that he had uncovered that had happened out of Mexico where a severed body had literally fallen out of the sky onto a highway. What, and people did, saw this happen? People saw this fall out of the sky? Yeah, yeah. Then, uh, at, the, at that time, and we were just getting to the latter stages of the Hudson Valley UFO flat, okay? The Hudson Valley UFO. Now, I got deeply involved with the Hudson Valley flat. Uh, back in those days, I was uh, talking to Bob Pratt. I was talking to Phil Imbrogno. Mm -hmm. uh, Heineck had already died, the people that wrote the Hudson Valley UFO. Mm -hmm. And I discovered, now, that was a tremendously, tremendously scary period of time for those people there. These huge craft were coming in, and on several occasions, the size of these craft, and there was almost no media about it, almost none, the size of the craft as they would overflow or overfly the highway would literally bring traffic to a stop on the freeway. My, my girlfriend actually uh, was part of the sighting. She, she was driving... Uh, it was either the Taconic or 684, and she pulled over, and I think they had seen she saw three of these things, and other people were pulling over as well. So this was the one UFO sighting she had, but, yeah, she saw these things. Yeah, this, we're, we're talking about circa yeah. 84, 85, 86, exactly. and, and through mm -hmm. there. Right. So anyway, while I'm doing this research, and I'm, I'm – you know, I'm interfacing with all these people back there, and, and people would give me phone numbers and, and names of people that had witnessed various things. Then I would have to call them up, introduce myself. They didn't have a have a clue who the hell I was. Mm -hmm. But I would call them up, tell them what I was doing, I was researching this stuff, and then hear these various stories. I discovered, and this is something that's almost unknown today, that farmers or, or people that, that had dairy cattle were losing dairy cattle by the dozens. In, the Huts, in, in like uh, Dutchess County and like north of, of Westchester? Yep, yep. Really? Now, 
I talked to one of the, and I'm not going to name him now, but I talked to one of the primary researchers at the time, and they had discovered, and this is what he told me, now I don't know this, okay, and let me just preface by saying I don't know this firsthand, this is secondhand, right. but that allegedly the military was flying cattle in and landing at some small military facilities there and were replacing the mutilated cattle with the cattle they were bringing in, trying to keep this quiet. Then I discovered something else. There had been, and now this is very delicate, but there had been one incident where two bodies were found. Allegedly, allegedly, two human mutilated bodies. Hmm. The police had come in to investigate this, and their investigation was taken over by federal authorities, and they were pushed out. Now, during this period of time, okay, and remember, I'm doing, I'm doing the mutilation thing. I went to a couple of buddies of mine that I had worked with at two different police agencies. This was in Idaho. And I went to them and I said, Look, I'm trying to, to track this down. I'm trying to find out if there's anything here or not. Okay? So this is what I want you to do, if you will. Okay, now the one guy was with one of the county sheriff's departments. The other guy was with OACPD. They were both detectives. And I said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to check the NCIC. National Crime Information Computers, now, which are handled by the FBI. You know what NCIC is, right? Enlightenment. Search criteria. I said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to put the search criteria in. Any unexplained human deaths that had these types of wounds on it, uh, et cetera. So I figured at the time, and I was taking night classes then, too, night college classes, one of these guys, uh, the guy with Boise PD, I figured, oh, man, I'm not going to hear back from him for like a week. Well, he got back to me within like two and a half days, and he came to me, and he said, Acker, what the hell are you trying to do? I said, what do you mean? He said, Jesus Christ, he said, I put this thing into NCIC. The next thing I know, my supervisor's calling me into the office, and he is chewing me up and down. I said, are you serious? He said, yeah. He said, I don't know what's going on here, pal. He said, but you really stirred up a, hor a hornet's nest. He said, uh, uh, man, flags popped up everywhere. Then I heard from my buddy at the sheriff's department. So then I did something stupid. I called up another guy I knew who was a cop in Ohio. And I said, hey, Dale, do me a favor. I want you to check this with NCIC. And I said, now I, I, I made the uh, uh, inquiry originally out here on the West Coast, but I said, maybe you'll have more luck with this. So he did. And then he called me back and he was all upset because he had really gotten his butt cream. And then I heard from a guy, now this, this is going to sound a little complicated, but I heard from a guy who called me at home from Florida. He was a DEA agent, and he said, hey, he said, uh, Don, he said, I got a question for you. He said, what are you trying to do? 
I said, what do you mean? He said, are you trying to get yourself killed? Huh? And I said, what? He said, look, he said, I heard about what you were doing. Now, I don't know how the hell he originally heard about what I was doing. This guy was legitimate. Is this a guy you knew? Is this a guy you knew? Yeah. All right. He said, I did some quiet checking around on this. He said, and let me tell you what. He said, flags got raised everywhere. And I said, what kind of flags? He said, look, all I'm going to tell you is this. If you're smart, he said, you're probably not, but if you're smart, you're going to back away from this. He said, because there are some people looking at this right now, and they don't want this information out. In other words, somebody, according to him, was very aware of human mutilation, but they didn't want it. You can imagine if something like that became public, people would be freaked out. So, you know, I, I dinged around with it. Uh, I kind of laid off the human aspect for a while. I was really boring in on the, on the cattle mutilation thing because it was, in my opinion at that time, it was all connected. But ultimately, I never got anywhere with it. Anywhere. So finally, after about three years, I just said, you know, it's not worth my time anymore. I'm not going to get anywhere with it. And uh, all I'm doing is, is uh, I'm making enemies with this thing. So I, I, I dropped it. Hmm. So, you know, there you go. Uh, is there weird stuff out there? Absolutely. Are there UFOs? Beyond any shadow of a doubt. Are they extraterrestrial? God only knows, and maybe somebody in the middle of Uncle Sam. But the bottom line is, the way the field is today, okay, with the level of research and the level of people involved, many of the people, not everybody, I, I don't see this going anywhere. And if anything, I have been out of this field now for two years. Okay, I left oh, January of 2007, I quit. And just occasionally taking a look at what's happening in the field around here, and I'm usually pretty quiet about it, but I, I, I see this field in worse shape now mm. than when I, when I quit, when I became fed up with it and left. I don't know what, what you guys think about this. I, I think I know, but you know, uh, you'd have to, you'd have to tell me your own thoughts about this. But I, I really, unless something so extraordinarily, uh, outrageous happened, I don't, you know, uh, UFO dropped in the middle of Wilshire Boulevard here in Los Angeles, or one came down, in Washington, D.C., uh, which would be practically impossible to cover up. I, I don't see this going anywhere. And people like Steve Bassett. Now, I think ultimately his aim is good. The way he's going about it is ridiculous. But to think that disclosure is in the wings, you know, it's, you know, it's like masturbation. It feels really good while you're doing it. But ultimately, you get nowhere. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. 
Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, this is Brad Steiger, and I'm in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. Join us as we explore new dimensions of thought. We have another second to spend with Don Ecker, UFO curmudgeon, telling us why he quit the UFO field, but he can't stay away completely. David. So the thing is, Don, that while the field is kind of stuck in a rut, UFO activity continues unabated. Uh, in the last couple of years, we've seen the Stevensville stuff happen. We see in South America and Argentina there is a major flap going on of some sort. Uh, you know, the, the UK uh, last year had a bunch of wacky stuff, but then there was a bunch of really compelling stuff. So it's not as if the phenomenon is going away. Uh, in some areas, like Argentina, it's intensifying. So this is the thing in that... Um, and, and I think that you know, what people will probably think of this episode is, oh, my God, they spent the whole two hours talking about these lunatics. But the, the bottom line is that when it's all said and done, something's still going on. And, you know, the way you were saying this before, I thought I was going to say to you, well, so does that mean we should just, you know, stop doing the Paracast and bail out you know, of this? The same, the same thing, David and Gene, the same thing happened in, and I mean, this, you know, it's like, do you ever watch Battlestar Galactica? Gene probably the, the does. Yes, Gene, I do, yes. You know, they they had a phrase in, in Battlestar Galactica. You know, these things have happened before, these things will happen again, or words to that effect. Now, this is a replay, pal. This happened in 69, when the Air Force shut down Project Blue Book in 1969. On the national landscape, the UFOs went silent. Did that mean that nobody was seeing UFOs? Oh, no. UFOs were being seen worldwide. UFOs were being seen above the battlefield in Vietnam. UFOs were being seen. It wasn't until really 73 or 74 that those two fishermen down in Pasigula, Mississippi were allegedly abducted. Mm -hmm. Right. That uh, UFOs hit the radar again. Then some really bizarre UFO cases happened, like the one above Malmstrom Air Force Base. Absolutely. Where well, or the Rendlesham case. Or nuclear weapons storage area, huh? Yeah. Or the Rendlesham case in 1980. In 80, right. These things kept happening. But people just weren't talking about it. And you mentioned Rendlesham. Nobody knew about Rendlesham until 1984. CNN 
did a special on that, which incidentally, I got to tell you, blew my mind when I saw it. They were talking about a UFO that landed beside a U.S. Air Force base mm-hmm. in the U.K. that housed nuclear weapons. See, right. that was a dirty little secret. It was a forward uh, tactical air base that, in the event, the Soviets invaded Europe. They were sitting there with nuclear weapons. Of course, the British weren't happy about that. And if you remember... Back in those days, the anti-nuclear movement that was all over Europe, I mean, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. People just loathed the idea of nuclear weapons. But that's where the UFO landed. So, 84, that that made a splash. Then, slowly but surely, the UFO info started to leak out again. 1986, that Japan airline liner. Uh, up from Alaska, flying over to Asia, saw that gigantic walnut-shaped UFO. I don't know if you will recall that. Even the uh, yeah. uh, radar people picked up something yeah. on their scopes. Yeah. And what was the Iran fighter thing? Was that 76? Yeah. 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 So, like I said, Don, the, the phenomenon continues. And in some ways in very extreme episodes. So what are we supposed to do? Or do we just ignore it? Do we just well, assume, well, this is the way it is? As long uh, as, David, as long as this lights your fire, buddy, and you are interested in getting any facts out that you can get, the only thing I could tell you is keep slugging away doing what you and Gene are doing. Oh, I know there are a few people we'd like to slug. I want to ask you a question here. We don't have a lot of time, and I don't want you to leave without pursuing this a little bit. Okay, so in the 50s, Major Donald Kehoe tries to get disclosure. And I guess to some degree that was culminated with some hearings in the 60s that brought about the Condon Report. And now we have several different classes of people that we've commented upon seeking disclosure. We have the guy who was on last week's show. And I feel sorry for him because he had a total meltdown on the air. We've had some pretty interesting guests, some who have left us prematurely, one in particular, one that we hung up on. This one melted down completely. So how do we go about bringing about disclosure? What's your conclusion about that? Gene, the bottom line is, and this is my absolute bottom line, when I first entered the field, I did so with the intention that if I stuck true to my guns, so to speak, and only went after the factual information and the things that I could personally, genuinely prove, that ultimately I would force the mainstream to recognize there was something there. I was very naive, okay? After all the years that I've spent in the field, my bottom line is I honestly, truly believe that disclosure is not in wings. Just take a look at what is happening today. Economic financial meltdown that we're undergoing. The fact that the stock market has dropped over 3,000 points. 
people are losing their jobs. Obama's tax stimulus package that right now is going through the Congress, taxes are going to rise dramatically. If you take a look at what's happening here in California, tax-wise, my God, it's a nightmare. The cost of everything is doubling and tripling. And then you look at other things, the war in Afghanistan, Iran going nuclear, North Korea firing ICBMs off. Do you honestly think that UFOs even make a blip on the national radar? No. So, like I said a short while ago, unless something so mind-boggling outrageous happened, one drop, uh, one UFO dropping in the middle of Wilshire, one dropping out of the sky into the middle of Washington, D.C., something that would be practically impossible to deny. I don't see it ever happening. I believe that whoever holds the purse strings on this project, whoever holds the key of secrecy, is an incredibly small, tiny, probably less than the fingers on your hand number of people that know everything there is to know. And I, I believe it was either Dolan or Bassett who said something I totally agree with. Administrations come, administrations go, but the secrecy holders remain forever. And they're not going to turn this loose for whatever reason. Now, I heard something also that uh, I agreed with. And once again, I don't recall if it was Dolan or Bassett. But they had talked about price of, of natural energy, oil, and what have you. What would happen, I think it was British Dolan, what would happen to the economy worldwide if suddenly we were presented with brand new source of power that would literally turn everything upside down overnight? What kind of a horrendous uh Carnage and chaos would, would that cause? And the secrecy holders know that. Talking about getting some of this technology out into the mainstream, a la Philip Corso, okay, mm, right. feeding goodies to, uh, allegedly feeding goodies to American industry back in the early 60s. What would happen? If suddenly we didn't have to worry about oil, we had a something similar to a zero-point energy. My God, what would that do? It would turn everything inside out, upside down. So, you know, there may be some fairly good reasons to keep this stuff secret. And then there's something else. And this is something I've kind of had a quiet suspicion about for a very long time. What if there were, in fact, more than one group of visitors coming here, and they were inimical toward each other? They had problems. And I have heard over the years some very troubling rumors that alleges that there have been skirmishes out in space and even here on the planet. 
In other words, uh, shootouts between various factions. Now, do I know this for a fact? No, I don't. No, right. I've heard rumors. But if there were any facts to that, can you imagine what would happen to the people here if they knew that, yeah, E.T. has come, yeah, he's here, he's got technology that we cannot begin to uh, uh, to grasp, and, hey, they're angry at each other. What would that do to uh, to people worldwide? That would be, well, it would be absolute chaos. So, you know, I, I think the, the secrecy holders, whether it's for good or ill, they would be loath to turn any of this information loose. Hmm. Uh, or maybe it's something even more complex than that. I personally think that uh, I look at all of these explanations, I listen to the rationale and the logic behind these things, and uh, and I've said this on the show before, I'll say it again as we wrap this segment, the secrecy behind all this, I don't believe is in human hands. We are not in a dominant position in this entire dynamic. We are in a submissive position, which means that we pretty much have no control and no say Whatever this other whatever this other is, it will only reveal itself if it wants to, regardless Absolutely. of you're one thousand percent correct because whatever is behind this phenomenon could have ended the secrecy yeah. sixty five years ago. Sixty five hundred years ago. I don't think that's what's going on here. And I, I personally have come to believe, I don't know, I just believe that the reason that whatever powers inside of the powers that be are whatever reason that they are holding this back is because they a don't want to admit that they don't, they don't really know what's going on or b that the truth that the truth of what's really going on is something that would be so problematic for the masses to hear it would you know I, and 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 we've seen this in the context of science fiction that people could not deal with hearing the truth of this. And I think early on when we had Bassett on, I said to him, what if the truth is not what you think it is? What if everything you come to think and believe about this is totally wrong? And instead we find out that, I guess like Gene always brings up, I guess the John Keel statement, the humans is property, that we could never hear this. We just couldn't. We couldn't hear Charles, Charles Sports. Right. Oh, Ford, I'm sorry. That's okay. Go. That's okay. What's the difference? John Keel likes to think of himself as a modern-day Charles Ford. Okay, right. Don, we're just about out of time. If our listeners want to learn more of the things that you're doing, even though you're mostly retired from the UFO field, where do they go? Paracast. That's basically one of the only places I go. I don't very often leave a note, but if I do, it's only because I have something I want to say. And we also have a link, by the way, to your Dark Matters radio log. Yeah, I uh, uh, occasionally will put something up on my on my blog, UFO-related. Uh, most recent entry I put up there uh, was about uh, something that, that, that happened to me when I was in the military. Uh, but uh, darkmattersradio.com. And, uh, you know, there's some funny stuff up there, some interesting stuff, some thoughtful stuff. And if you visit, you know, and read something a lot, don't be afraid to uh, leave a note. All righty. Well, thank you, Don. We always appreciate having you 
on the show. We're proud that uh, you find our little sandbox a good place to come play. And you're always welcome here. Well, thank you. <laughs> and you can bring some more sand in case we run low. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the PowerCast, Don Eckert. Keep looking up. The PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the PowerCast.